Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. And special thanks to W-A-B-E's sustaining members, along with everyone who donated during our fall membership campaign. In 1947, as the British were ending their 300-year occupation of India, They divided the subcontinent into two nations, the Muslim-majority Pakistan and the Hindu-majority India. Anjali and Jetty pays tribute to the more than a million people who died, those who survived, and descendants of the partition in her novel The Parted Earth. Her characters put a face to this situation and struggles of Indian life in 1947, the emigres' experience in mid-century London, and present-day Indian-American identity in Atlanta. Later this hour, author Anjali and Jetty will tell us about the multi-generational stories and love for poetry at the center of her novel. First, here's something to consider as you're getting dressed or shopping for clothes. According to CBS News Money Watch, the apparel and footwear industries together account for more than 8% of global climate impact, greater than all international airline flights and maritime shipping trips combined. With that in mind, Tangeria Willis, the Atlanta business owner of E-Closet Luxury Consignment, has created the first annual Sustainable Fashion Week in Atlanta. She joins me now via Zoom to talk about the events. Tanjuria, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. First off, what is sustainable fashion and why is it important? Well, sustainable fashion is fashion and clothing that helps to keep our our landfills clean. We're geared towards keeping the environment intact and, and really guided towards zero emissions. And so what it really is are clothing that uses fabrics that are potentially biodegradable or they don't add toxic chemicals to the environment or the landfills. They're quality clothing that really we extend the life cycle on by keeping them in circulation, i.e. your consignment stores and your stores where you reuse materials to do new things with. Those are all pieces of sustainability, but it also goes a bit deeper than that because it also includes brands that are committed to the environment in way of reducing energy because clothing manufacturing plants 
lend about 80% of energy use. And so that is a really high level. So in addition to what we're doing to the landfills and the chemical dyes that are going into the waters, we also have to think about the energy use that it takes to make these things as well. So brands that are committed to reducing the water usage, reducing chemicals in the water space, as well as keeping clothing out of the landfills, all into the sustainable community. And what is fast fashion? So fast fashion was invented about 20 years ago or so. When you started hearing the names, uh, it was really the inventors were your places like Zara and H&M and Forever 21 are all considered fast fashion brands. And what they did was they basically replicated what was coming down the runways, the fashion runways, and they mass produced it very cheaply using cheap labor in manufacturing plants really quick turnaround so that they could get them onto their floors and offered to consumers at a very fast pace. And so they're typically made in toxic environments and environments where there's not necessarily fair labor practices. Because they're so cheaply made, people tend to discard them. And so you can buy a dress that maybe a quality for $200 and you get this dress for $10 in a fast fashion way, you're going to be apt to throw that dress away when you're done with it and get a new one because you feel like it's so cheap, there's nothing you can do with it. I'm curious about your mention of fair labor practice. When you're talking about sustainable fashion, you've mentioned the environmental concerns. Is there also the ethical concern about fair labor? And is that different offshore versus something made in the U.S.? It is, there are those concerns. Those are huge concerns and those are huge parts of it as well. And they are not necessarily that different. The The difference really is that a lot of your cheaper labor is overseas. And that's why a lot of countries are really, really committed to more sustainable practices, even faster than the U.S. is. And so because of the fair labor and because of the cheap labor, they're able to create plants and get that kind of quick labor in order to meet their goals. And that's what a lot of people are, a lot of countries are unifying to try to stop those practices. And so with that, they've come out with Be Local Certified and becoming a Be Certified company, basically asking brands to commit to making sure that they take into consideration their hiring practices, their policies on child labor, their policies on treatment of women and their working practices, as well as their plants and the cleanliness of their plants. And also with animal usage, use of animal products and things like that and eliminating that as well. Mm. How did you become involved with creating and selling sustainable clothing? My background, which is very different, is electrical engineering. Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, I have a degree in electrical engineering. I started my career working in a nuclear facility as a plant systems engineer. And as I evolved, I've always been a lover of fashion and clothing because I've always felt that clothing helps people to be successful. And I say that my mantra is clothing is energy 
energy is confidence. Confidence is productivity and productivity leads to success. Oh my goodness. We have the engineer, the <laughs> business person, the creative side of your brain working here, all going into the, this is fascinating. <laughs> so I, I've kind of taken my my will to process everything and, and tie that into fashion. And as I started researching, my fascination with it started around the start of the whole fast fashion industry. And not only the effects that it was having as to what was drawing people to this cheaply made clothing, but also looking at at friends and what it was doing to their budgets. People don't realize the indirect effects that fast fashion has on so many things, i.e. your financials, because there used to be a time when you, where you had a clothing budget. That's what you would spend, you know, I'd spend $200 a month or $50 a month or whatever that number was. Well, with fast fashion, it's just like when you have that $20 bill that you break into $1 bills, it's easier to spend that $1 than it is that 20. You would probably hold that 20 a little longer. It's the same idea with clothing. And so they become budget busters and budgets go out of the window because you're buying things so cheaply, you buy them so much more because you're thinking, oh, it's only five bucks here or it's only 10 bucks here, but it adds up. Are you asking people to consider these many factors, the environmental impact, the fair labor practices, the ethics of child labor when buying a garment? That's exactly why I created Sustainable Fashion Week Atlanta, because I, I felt like there had to be a way to show people that we could live sustainably, we could dress sustainably in a fashionably and stylish way, just like we always have, and then also provide that education for them to help them to understand the effects that the clothing that they are typically used to buying, what that has on their day-to-day -day lives, how the chemicals affect the air, how that's affecting what we're seeing now in our hurricanes and in our tropical weather and, and the way the, the heat and the cold and everything is happening in the environment, the melting of the glaciers, all of these things are indirect results of, of what we are doing to the environment. And so to bring this in an entertaining way from a runway shows, to education. And that's why we are unifying this and we have international panels that we'll have. So it's not just a US problem, it's a global problem and it's a problem for everyone. And that's why we've included everyone in this conversation. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with Tanjuria Willis, the owner of e-closet luxury consignment and creator of Sustainable Fashion Week in Atlanta. Let's talk more about the events. There will be a runway show, panel discussions. Tell us more about each of the main events, if you will. Sure. When I created the event, I, I really wanted to present high fashion in sustainable clothing, because I think people have this perception of what sustainable clothing means. And they think of it as only being this bohemian look or the burlap sack or something that's not attractive at all. And so part of, of my goal was to present higher end clothing or just stylish looking clothing for people to say there are alternatives to what you buy now and you won't have to change your aesthetic. So that was one of the reasons. But what, as I started putting together, I realized that there's this gap in education that people needed to understand 
exactly what sustainable fashion is, not only how it looks, but what it is and how the effects of it has on our environment and on, on our global community. And so with that, we've also incorporated panel discussions that will talk about everything from busting the fast fashion gap to our circular economy, meaning what companies are doing now to invest more in sustainable practices, investors that are doing more around sustainability, communities, all of that. And we have the United Kingdom doing a panel about the effects of sustainability in the United Kingdom. We have someone from the German Fashion Council talking about why are we buying the clothes that we are buying and what we're doing to the environment, as well as uh, another young lady from the African Fashion Guide. So it is a conversation for everyone. We'll have also live entertainment and we'll have some shopping boutiques and places where people can get demonstrations on on weaving and how to do things simply, turn things that you have and use those t-shirts that you are going to throw away for something more usable that you can have. Because what most people don't know is it takes 2,700 liters of water to make one t-shirt. Oh, that is staggering. Yeah. It's just like that with blue jeans. It takes 10,000 liters of water to make a one pair of blue jeans. And that's not even talking about the water waste and the chemical, the dyes that are added to the water to do that process. So we'll be doing demonstrations and talking about things like that. Tanjiri, what are the sustainable criteria each of the brands must meet in order to be sold in your marketplace? We look at what are their policies around their manufacturing plants and how they treat their workers and their policies on use of animals and animal products and their cleanliness of their environment and toxicity of the chemicals in their plants, their use of water. And are they recycling products? Are they recycling water usage? Are they reducing their water usage and their energy? Are they offering fair labor practices? Also, what materials are they using? Are they using biodegradable materials? And we know that the exception is for places that are reusing materials such as consignment stores, and thrift type stores in places that are reusing fabrics that already exist. Those are are a little bit of exception with as far as are you using the biodegradable materials, but are you using materials that are already in existence and not new fabrics that are taking up space, you know, going towards our landfills and reusing them. We are hoping to create as well a recycling program for clothing and textiles that where we can take clothing and have them issued back to be reused as new designs or reduced to something that we can use. We know that polyester is is really plastic, and so maybe it can be used for furniture or different things like that. My dress became a sofa. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Which brands have you seen switch from either fast fashion or just unaware of their practices to more ethically sourced and sustainable choices? Well, a lot of brands today are starting to really implement what they're calling a slow fashion process. And so they're really trying to slow down on the fast fashion mantra and create more clothing products. So you will find a lot of brands now are trying to implement practices of sustainability in some way. One of the larger brands that have been leaders, and this is a sports brand, has been Adidas. 
Oh, they have been really working hard and they're probably one of the leaders in implementing sustainable products, even in their materials. And I think they have a goal of using 100%, I think, sustainable materials in, I believe, 2025 or something like that. So this year they were up to like 60%. And so they are moving really fast into trying to become that sustainable brand that offers those things. Other brands like Eileen Fisher is known for her sustainable clothing as well. So you have quite a bit of brands that are now starting and there are some some websites where you can research brands and they'll have ratings of brands. Some of them have very bad ratings, some of your more popular ones. And some of them have good and they have also offer alternatives to those brands. There are also myths surrounding ethical and sustainable fashion, I've read, such as the notion that luxury fashion is more sustainable than fast fashion. Perhaps this is even a greater concern, the idea that people may have the notion the more expensive the garment, the less likely it is that workers were exploited. How are you working to dispel those myths? It is definitely a lot of myths out there. There are a lot of companies that are what we call greenwashing the word sustainability. And what that means is, if you recall when organic was first starting the word organic. Oh, yeah. Everything became organic. People were slapping the organic label on just about anything. And that's the same with what's happening with sustainability. And so they say, oh, we've implemented a recycling program. We're sustainable. And so... <laughs> So it, it's what we call kind of greenwashing, like you're, you're saying you're sustainable, but you're not really truly sustainable, a sustainable company, but because it's becoming more popular and because people are taking note and holding companies accountable, they want to have that that label. And so what I tell people is just because it costs $1,000 or $500 does not mean that it's a sustainable brand. So I would have people to definitely research. Don't be afraid to ask companies, ask brands where their clothes are manufactured. Ask them what materials they're using if they're not readily available. Ask them if they use animal products or if they use animals in their clothing manufacturing or anything like that, if they make things with fur or whatever have you. And so those are all things that you can do is, you know, look at the label and look underneath the hood. <laughs> wow. I wondered when you were working in the nuclear plant, did you have to wear lab coat every day? I did wear a lab coat, but if I was in radiated areas, I, I was in full uniform garb, chain shoes, still toe shoes, whole nine, yes. <laughs> it, it must be so welcome for you to be able to don some pretty clothing at work now. It is, because that definitely was not as stylish as, <laughs> as today. <laughs> Tangeria Willis, this has been enlightening and so enjoyable. Thank you very much. Thank you again so much for the opportunity and thank you for having me. Atlanta's Tangeria Willis, owner of E-Closet, Luxury Consignment, and creator of Sustainable Fashion Week in Atlanta. The week's events begin on Thursday, October 28th, and run through the 30th. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylife. In a moment, we'll listen back to my interview with Anjali and Jetty, 
the author of the novel The Parted Earth. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. In 1947, as the British were ending their 300-year occupation of India, they divided the subcontinent into two nations, the Muslim-majority Pakistan and the Hindu-majority India. Anjali and Jetty pays tribute to the more than a million people who died, those who survived, and descendants of the partition in her novel, The Parted Earth. The book opens in New Delhi in June 1947, when the author joined me via Zoom in the spring. She began with an introduction to her characters. Deepa is... 16-year-old Hindu girl who lives with her parents, who are both in medicine. Uh, Her father is a physician. Her mother is a nurse. And Deepa is beginning a relationship with a 16-year-old boy whose name is Amir. And she is starting to feel the effects of the partition of her homeland. Many of her friends are Muslim. Uh, Amir is Muslim. And she's coming to understand the fact that everyone she knows and loves uh, who is Muslim is going to have to to move. They're going to have to abandon everything they've ever known, their homes, their communities, and move to what will be the new nation, the new majority Muslim nation of Pakistan. So Deepa is trying to sort of wrestle with the politics that are happening outside of her home, the disruption of her homeland, of her dear friends, and also uh, she's falling in love with Amir. Hmm. Deepa's father asks, how can we march together with Gandhi during the day and destroy one another at night? For thousands of years, Indian identity was never so inextricably tied to religion. The blood of partition is on British, not Indian hands. How do these characters put a face to the situation and struggles of Indian life in 1947? You know, it is is such a tumultuous and disruptive time for all of these characters. And of course, many of them have been living in harmony for many years. Of course, there have always been tensions and strife and wars between the various religions that inhabited the subcontinent. But this accelerated, this was heightened due to British colonization of of India. It is the colonization that made these differences so apparent. And it it is British colonization that capitalized on the differences in culture and community and faith. And so what is happening is now that the British are leaving, they are literally drawing a line in the sand and directing Hindus and Sikhs to what will be the new nation of India, which will be Hindu majority. 
and directing the Muslims to go to the new Pakistan. And it really was a severance of what was then known as Indian identity. And so what is happening at this time is, is grief. Many people who survived partition, and certainly the characters in this book, are dealing with not only the fact that they are being separated from people that they care about, but this severance of a land that they've lived on for generations, for thousands of years, which is being sliced up by their colonizer. Literature is Deepa's love and salvation. She views literature, the power of words, and ancient stories as her anchor in life. In fact, the very first page of chapter one contains a poem by Tagore, the first non-European Nobel laureate in literature. He received that in 1913. Would you please read those five lines of poetry? Happily. It's one of my favorite first verses in the book. But I find that thy will knows no end in me. And when old words die out on the tongue, new melodies break forth from the heart. And where the old tracks are lost, new country is revealed with its wonders. What is the role of poetry within the context of this novel? Personally, I find poetry, generally speaking, to be a great healer of traumas. And what is happening around Deepa, what is happening around her parents and certainly Amir and his family, is that there is, there is no adequate language to describe what is happening to their lives. There's no language to describe the kind of violence and hostility that they're facing, the sharp divisions that have been erected between communities. And it's poetry that gives these characters the space to process what they are witnessing. It is, it is really the, the only form that gives Deepa some kind of comfort and some kind of hope that when it's all said and done, things will be okay. And it is what she clings to because she's really not able to cling to much else. She endures a horrific tragedy during partition. And it's really only poetry that continues to connect her to reality and continues to let her to keep living her life. Angelia, I know you were a practicing lawyer, and this is your debut novel. Have you written volumes of poetry? I wish, Lois. I am a major admirer of poets. You could even go far as to say that I am a wannabe poet. Um, I, I can tell you that I have volumes of bad poetry <laughs> that are filed away in deep, dark uh, corners of my cabinets. Um, but no, I, I, uh, I have so much respect for poets. I actually personally feel it's the most challenging form to write in. And I love to read poetry and I find great comfort in it. And when I was struggling with how, how to figure out how a character like Deepa goes on, how she lives from day to day after what she's seen. You know, I've remembered dark times in my own life and how, how literature, including poetry, got me through it. And so this was, this was the gift that I wanted to give to Deepa as well, a love for poetry. Well, I think the poems that we read of Deepa's in this book Written by you do not indicate wannabe poet. I appreciate that. Thank you. As the world around them was crumbling and chaotic, Deepa and Amir fell in love. Crazy love. Yeah. And Deepa writes a poem conveying her love. Would you read this 16-year-old's poem on page 48? This is a poem Deepa writes called Night notes. Pen to paper, paper to pen, coaxing my heart with ink the shade of midnight. 
Shapes shift under the moon's glow, unfolding musical lyrics, sweet sounds bringing you to me, me to you. Verdant leaves cradle dewdrops in their veins, our only witnesses. Now, Amir expresses his love through origami creations with notes he includes. How is the origami, as Amir's form of communication, rich in metaphor here? So, uh, as you mentioned, Lois, Amir makes origami, and he hides within the origami little love notes to Deepa and leaves them in plants on her family's porch so that she can find them and Deepa collects them. And one of the reasons I used origami in the book, and I thought it was apt, an apt way for Amir to communicate with Deepa, is because origami is really about creating something new out of a blank slate. And during this time of immense strife and fear and panic in 1947 during partition, many of these characters have to leave behind everything they've ever known and begin a completely new life elsewhere, like like refugees all over the world do. And so to me, the origami symbolizes how these characters, how people during partition had to take something out of nothing and they had to create a new life and create something beautiful out of it. And so to me, that was an important way for me to convey Amir's messages of love to Deepa. Anjali and Jetty, author of the novel The Parted Earth. We'll return with more of this conversation in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Let's get back to my conversation with the author Anjali Njeti. Her novel, The Parted Earth, is a sweeping narrative that incorporates poetry and multi-generational stories. Here, and Jetty explains how the novel is structured and why part two takes us to another time period. The book is divided into three parts total. Part two takes us to 2016, and we encounter a character named Sean Johnson. Sean is short for Shanti, which is an Indian name. Sean is a biracial woman. She has a white mother and an Indian father. But Sean is very disconnected from her Indian heritage. Her father, Vijay, left her and her mother when Sean was only five years old, and he moved to India out of the blue. Didn't really make it clear why he was even moving to India. And when Sean is age 11, Vijay suddenly passes away. And Sean's grandmother is Deepa, and uh, she is completely estranged from her as well. So we encounter a Sean that really has no connection to India, has no idea that she has any family members who live through partition. And she's also going through a a very rough time of her own. She's recently lost a pregnancy and her marriage has ended. And it's only when these terrible things happen that Sean feels a longing to connect with the memories she has of her father and her Indian family. And part three does something a bit more unusual than parts one and two, which focus on Deepa and Sean respectively. In part three, we readers actually enter several different characters' points of view, all of whom have some connection to partition, which is not immediately obvious. It jumps in countries and it jumps in decades. So we see, for example, Lahore, which is a city in Pakistan uh, in the present day. We see Amritsar, which is a city in India in the 1980s. We see London in the 1950s. 
And each of these characters are going to sort of work together to figure out the central mystery in the book. I'd like to go back to part two. Chapter eight is set in Atlanta. And you give a very vivid sense of place here, as well as describing a lovely friendship between Sham, whom you introduced, and Chandani. Would you talk about their relationship, how they meet, and what evolves in Atlanta? So Chandani is Sham's neighbor in Atlanta. She lives just down the street. They've been neighbors for about 18 months, but don't know each other too well. Chandani had been widowed 18 months earlier and just decided to restart her life in Atlanta where she has a niece. She can be a little bit um, abrasive, kind of harsh. She does mean well and she's well-intentioned and she's living alone. She's in her 60s. She has an adult son who lives elsewhere. And... Atlantans will appreciate the sense of place you evoke in this section. Please talk about this setting of the Atlanta Botanical Garden and comments about the cycle of life. Oh, the Atlanta Botanical Gardens is probably one of my favorite locations in Atlanta. I usually visit a few times a year. And Chandani decides to take Sean to the gardens to talk with her and to sort of help her begin her journey of healing. Sean is now living alone. She's mourning a a miscarriage and the breakup of her marriage. And Chandani, who has recently lost her own husband, is also in mourning. She's also grieving. And so Chandani takes her to the gardens and she takes her to what is my favorite uh, botanical sculpture in the gardens, which is Earth Goddess. And for many people in the Atlanta area, you will know it is this beautiful sculpture with a fountain of a woman. We see her head and her shoulders coming out of the water. And for Chandani, this symbolizes a rebirth. And she takes Sean to this space. And, and it is here where Chandani asks Sean, in an attempt to get her to sort of take the steps necessary to heal, whether she has named the baby that she lost. And it's this question that sort of begins Sean's new journey, which starts her looking forward again and seeing the generations of her family as a life cycle. And it causes her to not only name her child, but also to begin thinking more deeply about her past and her ancestry and the father and grandmother that came before her and understand that if she's going to heal at all, it is going to come from reconnecting with all of the lives that came before her and understanding the decisions and also the tragedies that her family members made. If you are just joining us, This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with the Atlanta author Anjali Njeti about her novel, The Parted Earth. Part three opens in London in 1954. Tell us about Gertrude. Gertrude is one of my favorite characters in the book, probably because she is modeled a little bit after my Austrian grandmother, Gertrude, who passed away a few years ago. Gertrude is Austrian. She finds herself in London when all of her family who lived in Linz, Austria, were killed uh, during World War II and the Nazi occupation of Austria. So she, in many respects, is also a refugee, and she meets Deepa at the university that they both attend in London, and they live in the same building and decides to help Deepa raise her very young son, Vijay, who is only six years old, and they form a bond. Both of them are very, you know, they live their lives alone. Neither one of them have close family members to rely on, and so they kind of form their own family together. When the narrative moves to 2017, can you tell us how the characters' stories converge? One of the things that struck me most about Partition 
And it's something I still think about regularly, that six decades passed before there was a formal widespread effort to archive survivors' stories about partition. This is why the archive, a formal way of documenting stories, is actually at the heart of the book. It's why 40% of the book takes place during partition and the other 60% is afterwards because I'm asking the question, what happens if we don't know our ancestors' histories? How does not knowing shape our lives? And so one of the mechanisms that the character stories converge is what I call in the book, the partition project, which is actually modeled after a real organization called the 1947 Partition Archive, which was started in 2011 by a woman named Gunita Singbala to help collect the stories of survivors during partition. And so it's this archive, the Partition Project, that eventually brings many of the character stories of partition to light. And it is how they begin to find one another. And once again, poetry plays a major role in the culmination. Would you read Engine, the poem included in Chapter 18? Happily. I will lay railroad tracks across continents, one plank after another in perpetuity. Look for my reflection in the rails. Listen to the vibration of my voice. Why must words fail me now when only syllables can bridge the distance, the gap of our sorrow, the abyss between our entwined souls? And then you step back a year and the narrative moves to Lahore, Pakistan. The theme of origami is reintroduced, this time with metal sculpture. Anjali, I understand as a writer how you can include poetry for your characters. You can write those poems. But this visual art sculptor, how did this idea come to you? You know, it's interesting. In 2012, I was staying at uh, the Hambidge Center in Northeast Georgia in Rabin Gap, uh, working on the novel. And I went up to Highlands, North Carolina, There's a little museum there. And I was looking at, there was an exhibit and there were, there was uh, metallic uh, sculptures, sculptures made out of metal. And I entered this room and there were these beautiful small sculptures hanging from the ceiling. And I could not tell you Lois right now what those sculptures were, but the room was otherwise completely black and they were hanging from the ceiling and, and the light was sort of shining on the twine that they were hanging from and from the sculpt on, on, and on the sculptures themselves. And I, it was one of the most beautiful arrangements of art I'd ever seen. And I thought that is something that I need to think about using in this book. And so I began thinking about the artist in the book and what she needs at that time. She is in her seventies. She has seen a lot of tragedy in her life. And she's at a moment where she feels powerful. She is a survivor. And so to me, when I think of sculpture, when I think of metals, I think of strength. I think of the kind of force that's required to shape something out of metal. And I thought, how amazing is that to be an artist who is a metal sculptor who can who can mold something so strong and, and make it bend to their will in order to tell a story. And, and so that to me was a very natural medium for this character. The culmination of this novel is so gratifying and parts leading up to it took my breath away. That's such a compliment. Thank you so much, Lois. I just loved it. And I'd love for you to read a final portion Um, This is on page 252. For your purposes, it's when Shanti is at the Taj Mahal and she says, Auntie, I know this spot. My father brought me right here to look out at this same view. She leaned over. Would you read there? 
She peered down below to the Yumuna River, tributary of the Ganges River, which started in the Himalayas, flowed through Delhi, eastward into Bangladesh, and emptied eventually into the Bay of Bengal. One body of water joined another and then another in an endless cycle that would continue long after they all departed this earth. When her father brought her here 30 years earlier, she sensed the immortality of this place. There was a timelessness to it. And today, the link between her father, her grandparents, and her great-grandparents seemed stronger than ever, present in ways she couldn't explain. Atlanta author Anjali Jetty. More information about her novel, The Parted Earth, can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Atlanta artist R. Land joins us and shares the stories behind his most iconic pieces, including Lost Cat and Pray for ATL. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.